Welcome to the Be Brave podcast, where ordinary, badass, brave women speak their stories of courage and strength. We hope that by hearing the struggles and successes of women just like you, it will help you be brave. Please note that the Be Brave podcast does cover adult topics that include overcoming adversity in areas of sexual abuse, addiction, depression, and other difficult experiences. Trish Walden with us, who will be discussing what it was like growing up with an alcoholic mother and a transgender father in the 60s and 70s when families and really people in general just didn't talk about this kind of stuff. Trish Walden is a lifelong learner and entrepreneur who built a successful 25 plus year career in healthcare administration in her home state of Connecticut. In 2015, Trish left corporate healthcare administration to pursue her passion for working with people utilizing evidence-based principles of positive psychology. That lifelong passion was fueled by her own story of growing up as the middle daughter of a transgender father when being transgender was just unheard of and all of the challenges and instability that comes with experiencing childhood traumas regardless of how extreme those traumas must might be. In 2016, Trish and her husband, George, moved to Dunedin, Florida. She established a positive life in 2019, a coaching and consulting practice utilizing the principles of positive psychology. In this podcast, Trish will share parts of her story that have led her to a place of peace, authenticity, integrity, and happiness, which we know is a choice. Happiness is a choice. Trish, thanks so much for joining Kara and I today. Thank you, Patty. It's great to be here. Yes. Thank you, Trish. We are so happy to have you with us. And I'm going to read a quote that I found that I read to the last person we interviewed. And I think I'm going to read this every time to our uh, to the people we interview, because I think it's so important. I found this on Facebook. It is not attributed to anyone, but I love the quote. And it's so apropos for what we're doing here. Trish, one day you will tell your story of how you've overcome what you're going through now, and it will become part of someone else's survival guide. Wow, that's a great quote. We really appreciate you being brave and sharing your story with us. Thank you. Uh, You're very welcome. Good to be here. So would you like to start at the beginning (laughs) when you were a child? (laughs) Well, you know, when you're in your mid-late 60s, (laughs) you don't want to start too far back because we could go all night. But sure, you know, I did grow up in Connecticut in a suburb of Simsbury, a little town called Terraville. And uh, it was kind of like the the little suburbia, yuppie type of community of its day back in in the mid-50s. And in those days, we I was the middle child of three. I have a sister who's two years older and a, another sister who's four years younger. And we were in a neighborhood with other families. My parents were doing very well at that time. They were both college graduates and starting out in their careers. My mother was an actor. She was doing uh, TV commercials. She had done some local theater 
My father was an engineer, a budding engineer with a new company in Torrington, and life was good. And I think back on those early memories, and uh, I remember uh, Easter celebrations, and I remember Christmas and how exciting it was when my dad would uh, trim the Christmas tree from the top of the balcony. Many, many good memories. I don't really remember when it began to come apart, but uh, I do remember the feelings that went with it. I knew that something was wrong in our family. My father would come home late at night and uh, often he'd been drinking. And my mother, I would hear my mother crying sometimes in the middle of the night. And then there was the fire. And I think the fire was probably, uh, you know, a, a time when I realized that things weren't okay in my family of origin. My father had fallen asleep, was smoking a cigarette. Uh, had had too much to drink that night, and the uh, cigarette caught the cushion that he had been sitting on on fire. And my mother smelled the smoke, woke him up, put the cushion out into the garage, and we all went to bed. And in the middle of the night, we woke up. I must have been about maybe four or five years old. My older sister was was six or seven, and my younger sister was just a baby. And we went in and woke my parents up and said, Mommy, Daddy, the house is on fire. And my mother thought we were just smelling the smoke from, uh, you know, from what had happened earlier. And then they realized that the house indeed was on fire. And uh, the, the kitchen underneath our bedroom uh, was completely engulfed in flames. My father, who was the president of the volunteer fire department at the time, wanted to put this out by himself. And my mother was hysterically screaming, Bud, you can't put this fire out. Anyway, she did call the fire department. Uh, we were saved. Uh, nobody was hurt, but the house was uninhabitable for a number of weeks. And I think that was my first memory that maybe our family wasn't as normal as some of our neighbors. And it was after the fire that I remember my father disappearing more. Sometimes my mother would disappear for an entire weekend. You know, we didn't know where she was. We were left with babysitters. Things were very chaotic. And at that time, there was no evidence that my father was battling this identity crisis, this feeling that he was born into a woman's body. Nobody or a woman born into a man's body. Nobody had any frame of reference at that time for this kind of issue that obviously today is so much more prevalent and accepted and understood, at least as best as anybody can understand it. All we knew was how it felt. And the way it felt was that we weren't okay, that we weren't, something was wrong in our family. Uh, where my parents used to have a lot of parties and people would come over, suddenly people weren't uh, engaging. Some kids weren't playing with us. They used to play with us. And when I think back on it now as an adult, I realize that those were the seeds that got planted in, in, in my psyche uh, that made me feel somehow less than or feel a sense of shame that, you know, that my family wasn't okay. And I also recognize as I look back that that's where some of my traits of trying to always get it right that evolved into perfectionism. 
and excellence and feeling as if I had to really always work really hard to keep up or to just be as okay as I perceived other people to be. Did you feel as a child that maybe if you could be better, then your family could be better? Did you take that on as a as a personal mission? Was that part of it? You know, I I think that's where that seed was born. You know, feeling that somehow if I could be my best self, that my family might be okay. Uh, so, and as a middle child, I was a peacemaker anyway. I was always looking to try to bring everybody together and, you know, uh, make the best of things. I was always more upbeat and optimistic, I think, than both of my two sisters. And, and do you think the reason, Trish, why people, kids weren't coming around anymore, your parents weren't, didn't have the friends they used to have, do you think that outsiders started to recognize something wasn't right? Like, I, I think every neighborhood, when you're a kid growing up, you make up stories, right? We do it as adults too. We make up stories about people we don't know. And so do you think people were making up stories about your family and making up, you know, just I- having ideas and then just didn't want to come around? Was was that truth? Was that your story? Is that, uh, tell me a little bit about your perception of that and where, where you think it came from. Yeah. I mean, I, at that young age, you know, seven, eight, nine years old, you don't have enough information necessarily to make up stories. But again, there are feelings that you have. And so our lawn wasn't being mowed and all the other neighbors had their lawns mowed. You know, if there was a snowstorm, other people's driveways were being shoveled. So you knew that somehow things were happening. Uh, Other people were having dinner as a family on Sunday afternoons or, you know, they They'd be going home for dinner and dad would come home from work. And that wasn't happening in my family. So, and my mother stopped doing housework. She she didn't know how to deal with her own emotions about what was happening in her family. She was, you know, she she was very young, had three children to take care of, and a husband who wasn't coming home at night, but she didn't know why. So, you know, she wound up starting to drink at that time. I don't remember ever seeing her drunk uh, as a child. I think she probably concealed that pretty well, but it was just one more indication of things falling apart. And so when we had a babysitter, sometimes the babysitter would come in and say, wow, you know, doesn't your mother ever do the laundry? Because there would be piles of laundry. And I had this sense of, oh, you know, mothers are supposed to do laundry. How come my mother isn't doing laundry? So it was more, you know, those pieces of a puzzle that were beginning to form a picture, but I didn't know what that picture meant. It was more about feelings of insecurity and not okayness. And what what led you to kind of really have evidence that, okay, these aren't feelings anymore. These are, this is the real deal. Like now it's evident to me. What was that moment, that defining moment for you as a kid? Yeah, I think there were probably many moments, but some of them were that when my parents were still having parties, my 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 father would often be, especially with a few drinks, the life of the party. And there were a few times when he disappeared and came back to the party wearing a dress and a wig. And people would think, oh, 
look at Bud. He's such a character. You know, some people put a lampshade on and he comes down wearing a wig. So it, it was interesting because I think we had no frame of reference. My mother had no frame of reference. In fact, she found uh, bobby pins or hair clips or whatever in his suit jackets, and she thought he was having an affair. She had no idea that he was cross-dressing, that he was playing out this part. So I think, again, when I look back, there was a lot of chaos and a lot of uncertainty about what was going on, where our parents were. And uh, then my father got into a number of car accidents and uh, financial issues started to crop up and uh, they wound up having to file bankruptcy and the house was sold. My mother took the three of us and we moved into a cold water flat in Newington, Connecticut, and I started school there. And again, I, I would say at that point, I was probably 12. Uh, 12 years old. And I knew there was something not right. Again, knew that something was different about our family. Most of our friends were not separated and divorcing, unlike the way things are today. Uh, so I was just really in, in many ways in survivor mode. I grew up very quickly. I knew that my mother was working three to 11. We were three girls at home by ourselves. My younger sister then was uh, eight, and we had to look after her, and we did what we had to do. So when you, when, when your parents filed bankruptcy, they separated and divorced. Yes. Well, they separated. They actually never divorced. Or no, now that I say that, no, they did divorce eventually because my mother did remarry many, many, many years later. But they were, they loved each other. And I think if there's one theme that I keep coming back to in my life, is that in spite of a lot of the dysfunction and the chaos and the uncertainty, I always had a sense that we were loved through it all. That, and even that my parents loved each other. So, you know, I, I, I would say that, you know, that that was a touchstone that carried me through uh, a lot of, a lot of this difficulty. It's hard to imagine as a little girl, your mom might disappear for a weekend and your dad is, you know, drinking, coming home late and um, chaos, the lawn's not being cut, but yet you still felt love. Uh, I think that's yes. so amazing and so important to feel loved as a kid. So yeah. it's great. And on some level, I knew that it wasn't our fault. And I know that that's not the case with many, many kids. Many kids, when things begin to fall apart, think, you know, it's because they didn't do their homework or they didn't clean their room or I don't know exactly why, but I knew on some level that something was happening to my family, but that it wasn't my fault. Do you think your sisters felt the same way? I do. Yeah. That's incredible. I yeah. know it is incredible. It just doesn't sound like the typical story of when there's chaos in the home with young children, usually young children, or when, when parents get divorced or even separated in your case, kids usually, from what I've heard, take that on themselves. Like, well, maybe yeah. I should just be a better kid and then my parents will get back together, which is incredibly sad. It's interesting. You had a little voice in, inside of you. The itty that was overruling the itty bitty shitty committee. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> saying you are loved and this is not your fault. Yeah. And there were other, you know, there were teachers and there were uh, other family members 
uh, around us who recognized that, you know, there was, this was a family that was in some chaos. And I, you know, uh, again, they're sort of baseless people uh, in terms of some of the people in, in grammar school, but the kindness of, of strangers and the kindness of family members who could see what was happening, who came in and were there at a special moment, uh, those experiences can be enough to carry you through some of the most difficult times in life, especially as children. You know, I always felt that that we had value, and yet there was this stuff going on around us. So, can do you do you mind elaborating for us? Because I think that your story is extremely unique and different than what most people go through as kids. When when did your like when did your dad come out, so to speak? How did he share that with all of you? What was your mom's response and your siblings' response? Like, what was the overwhelming response? Was he embraced? Was he shamed? Like, if you're comfortable, Trish, talking about that. Sure. Yeah. You know, this was the 1960s and the 1970s. And uh, a lot of these topics, you know, people didn't know, didn't understand them, let alone how to talk about them. And my father was not super intellectual, but not a very good communicator. And so he never sat us down and said, kids, you know, there's something we need to tell you. Our parents did sit us down and tell us that they were separating, that we were moving. So those kinds of things that really impacted our day-to-day life, they did tell us. But it wasn't until I started high school when my parents decided to give it one more try, that they loved each other. By then, my mother knew that my father believed that he was a woman that was born into a man's body and that he had this incredible compulsion and need to correct what he felt was a practical problem. We didn't know that, but they decided to give it a go and to move back in together. And they did. And they were, you know, they were sleeping together. They had a relationship as a husband and wife. And my mother got pregnant and uh, she had a baby girl. So we had a baby sister. Unfortunately, the baby died in childbirth. So uh, she was a full-term baby. I still don't fully understand what happened. For a while, uh, when I got older, I, I made up a story that maybe my mother had given the baby up for adoption because it was a change of life baby. And she was not prepared with all that had been going on in her life uh, to have another child. And we were 16, 14, 15, you know, we were teenagers. We wouldn't have given her a moment's peace if she ever told us that she gave up a baby for adoption. Uh, but that was not the case. The baby, in fact, had had died. But it was around that time when my father said, I can't do this. This is not who I am. And we knew that he had a uh, like a footlocker that he kept locked at all times. And there was something really mysterious about that. We didn't know what it was, but we were teenagers. We were very curious. Mm. So one night after the little one went to bed, my older sister and I picked the lock. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> on the trunk. And we opened it. And inside were these women's wigs and clothes and 
jewelry and makeup. And we looked at each other like, what are we looking at here? What is this? Well, we locked it back up. And the next day, we cornered our mother and said, you need to tell us what's going on. So wait, you didn't corner your father. You cornered your mother. (laughs) I find it is easier to talk to mom, isn't it? Yeah. Especially about this. (laughs) Right. Mom, these are yours, right? Mom, these are yours. <laughs> right. Yeah. Can you explain this? <laughs> we knew that she was in theater at one point. We figured maybe it had something to do with that. And that's when she sat down and she said, I can't explain this. I don't fully understand it. But she said, your father believes that he was supposed to be a woman. And uh, he's made a decision. He is going to pursue this. And we were we were just totally blown away. Like, who has this happened in their family? Like, and and then of course we began to put two and two together and say to each other, "Hey, didn't you notice that Daddy is shaving his legs? Did you notice that? Oh yeah. Did you notice that he seems to be plucking his eyebrows?" So we didn't talk with our dad about it. It just seemed like it wasn't. You know, it, it, we didn't have a frame to even be able to talk about it. We didn't know how to talk about it. So we didn't. And uh, we did talk to my mother and we were supportive of her. But I, as I look back on it, one thing that stands out to me again was that my mother didn't condemn him. She uh, would be frustrated with him, but she didn't hate him. She didn't try to change him. She didn't try to make him into somebody he wasn't. And I think that gave us a cue for how we might deal with it. My father went on to uh, have surgery with the same doctor who did the surgery for Christine Jorgensen, who was a tennis player back in the 1960s, who was one of the first publicly known uh, transgender people. And, uh, and then she, and that was one of the hardest things to learn to do, is to address my father with a female uh, you know, as as a female, female pronouns. She took on the name Rose because his name was Ambrose. And so it's just kind of cutting something. Well, anyway, Rose, his, nick, his nickname, you know, throughout all of his uh, life, and he'd been in the Navy and, you know, was kind of a guy guy. He wasn't effeminate at all, but his nickname was Bud. So in some ways, going from a bud to Rose was just logical in his brilliant mind. And um, and I have to say, at first, I, I, I just really couldn't accept it. I struggled. I felt that it was some sort of mental or emotional illness that he wasn't dealing with in a, in a good way. And that, you know, to me, it was mutilating your body. It was sort of like a Michael Jackson thing where if you you know, want to change your skin tone, that somehow that's going to change who you are. I, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. So I went through a period of, um, I would say, neutrality, where I just didn't have much of a, a relationship with him. Interestingly, my dad went on to work for Bechtel International, uh, which is a huge company that does a lot of government contracting. And he was, she was supposed to be assigned to a project in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Rose by then was their lead uh, air conditioning and refrigeration engineer. 
And the Saudi government would not allow them to send Rose because they didn't allow women to work on their projects, which is kind of ironic. How did she feel about that? Like, how did she, did, that must have been huge for someone yeah. who chose to be a woman and went through a lot to do yes, so. Absolutely. And then was discriminated against yeah. because of that. Yeah, she was, she was very angry about it. She was looking forward to doing the project. And in fact, she wound up with a lawyer and the lawyer wanted to sue Bechtel because Bechtel was a contractor with the Saudi government and should have uh, been upholding American law. And uh, at one point, I remember getting a phone call from a representative uh, who was with Oprah, and they wanted to feature our family's story on one of the Oprah shows. And I was just, no, we're not. You know, this is the first time I've talked about it publicly, so you can imagine um, you know, tonight in talking with you ladies and your audience, uh, no, I was not prepared to uh, talk about it back. You know, that would have been 40 years ago. I mean, Trish, here you are on a Be Brave podcast. And really, your dad, Bud, was super, super brave at that time to do what he did to become Rose. Like, I mean, super brave, braver than I think I could ever imagine being. And, That's exactly and, right, Patty. And, you know, it's when I think about what my parents did to cope with what they were dealing with. You know, my mother uh, turned to drinking. She eventually gave that up. My father was drinking heavily. They didn't, you know, there was no therapy. There was no uh, framework. There weren't support groups. They did what they had to do. And when I look back on it now, I realize how much strength, how much courage uh, for my mother to take three daughters and move into, you know, a cold water flat in Newington, Connecticut, and just try to do this on her own. Uh, they were very courageous people. And I realize now that a lot of my bravery that, you know, that, that I have employed in my lifetime comes from them and their examples. And even those examples that maybe aren't the, you know, the perky uh, scenario can be exactly what drives us to succeed and become and keep going, even when, you know, the, the odds are against us, or we feel like we're the only one going through whatever it is that we're, we're battling. Yeah. How, how much your parents probably felt like that, like they were the only ones going through what they were going through. Yeah. Cause again, you don't talk about this. Stuff. It's hard for people to talk about it now, but back then you just don't. So there was probably no support for them. Or if they, God forbid, they eked a little bit this of this out to anyone, they might say to them, oh, you can't, you probably shouldn't let anybody else know about this. Just, you know, you work it out. You're married. So, you know, you'll work it out. That's not helpful. <laughs> yeah. 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 And even if I don't think they went to marriage counseling, but even if they had, you know, again, there was no frame of reference for how do you guide people? How do you help them get through? And again, I have to say that that common denominator of love was present. My father, uh, after he went through the change, came back from California, lived in Connecticut. My parents were best friends in, in many ways through those years. My father founded a an organization of transgender people and uh, called the 20 Club. And it had to do with 
uh, trans, and I don't remember exactly how it connected, but my mother was uh, a regular in attending those meetings and helping other families and other spouses deal with, uh, or children of transgender people, deal with uh, the emotions around whatever it was that they were going through. She never said she understood it. And I have to say today, I still don't fully understand how it happens that people wind up being transgender, but I've accepted it and recognized that we are all people that have very different fingerprints and very different life stories. So uh, yeah, that's been that common denominator of love. And even when my father passed away in Meriden, Connecticut at Mid-State, my mother was there, I was there, my two sisters were there, and we surrounded him with love. And it was interesting, he asked to be buried as Ambrose. I don't know if that was because it was kind of completing a circle for him, but but he seemed a much happier person as Rose than he ever was as Buck. Wow. You know, I just want to say, Trish, I looked up the 20 Club, and you probably know this. It still is a, a support group in existence today. Is it really? I didn't know that. Yeah. Is it and only in Connecticut or is it nationwide? No, it says here it's Connecticut Networking or Connecticut Network of Care.org is where I see it. And um, it's just the transgender support group, educational, social, and peer support group for transgender individuals. It meets on the second Saturday of the month. Isn't that incredible that uh, your your dad um, created something and it still is something that's pretty darn cool. That's yeah. amazing. And I love that your mother and your father were best friends till the day he, she died, your father, she died. And um, that she, your mother, I gotta, I guess, specify which she I'm talking about. Your mother worked with your father on um, w- uh, in this this 20 club to to help others. I, I'm like, so I'm blown away by that because it's just so it's it really shows their love for each other because it rose above whatever difficulties they had or even I don't understand this, but I love you and I'm going to support you and help. And that, how incredible for you. What a gift to give your kids just by example. And, and do you think, I mean, I know that your whole pursuit in life is to, to choose to be happy, to, to, to be a positive, happy, functioning person. Could you say that your parents were happy? You said that Rose was much happier than as Bud, but do you think that your, your mom and dad uh, were able through their journey to also find their happiness by the way they were, they were brave and they did stand up and they created an organization. Maybe your dad created it, but together they worked in it. It, What do you, what's your take on how they felt at the end of their life? Absolutely. You know, I think they had their priorities in order and, you know, it was always rise above whatever the obvious issue might be. There was something more important than that. And that was the relationship. And the friendship and the connection. And that's why I have to say that even though my father was not a great communicator, I always felt that he loved me. And I always felt that he liked me and admired me. And I felt that way about my mother, too, that, uh, you know, they had a way of looking beyond the surface and seeing the heart of a matter, whatever it happened to be. 
neither one of them achieved a tremendous amount of financial success. My father did fairly well because he wound up working for Merck Industries, Merck Pharmaceuticals. And late in life, they gave him a pension, which was nice because he wasn't much of a saver. And uh, so that sustained him until until he passed away. But it wasn't about material stuff. It never was for them. It was always about relationships. And, and that was a gift that they gave me that continues to give give back today. As an adult, Trish, and thank you so much for sharing your story and for being so vulnerable with us. But as an adult, did you ever have a conversation with your mom or dad, uh, like adult to adult? Like, tell me, tell me this or tell me that? Oh, yes, yes. Good question, Patty. I went on a quest, you know, I guess I would call it, you know, if I was quoting Joseph Campbell, it was my own hero's quest. I had a two-year-old son at the time. I was not married and had chosen not to marry my my son's dad at that point. I eventually did marry him. I had <laughs> that, that sounds point. like a whole other podcast. <laughs> That's a whole nother podcast. That's a whole nother story. But anyway, I decided to just kind of hit the pause button. I needed to take a break. I was thinking about going into a new line of business and I wanted to do research on that. I had saved some money. So I tried to quit my job. My boss wouldn't let me leave. He said, uh, you'll take a leave of absence. I said, Lenny, I could be gone for a couple of months. He said, that's all right. He said, just call me every month. <laughs> and so, and, and I thought I was going to have to sell my house. But my cousin said, I'll move into your house and I'll keep things going. I'll pay the mortgage. So I wound up having this window of opportunity to go cross country. And I took my son and off we went. And I was gone for about almost two months altogether. And I realized coming back that my quest really was coming to peace with my father and with the choices that he had made. And I didn't realize until that journey how much resentment I had been carrying and judgment and not understanding. And so when I came back, I met with him. It was actually on the return trip. We met in Florida and I confronted him and I said, did you realize how this was going to impact all of us? Didn't you know that, you know, I wouldn't have you walk me down the aisle when I got married, that you wouldn't, you know, my dad was gone. That was, you know, he was no longer here. And we talked about it. We were, I, I'll never forget, we were in a diner. And we talked about it and we both just broke down and cried. And he said, I didn't know. I didn't know. And I knew that he didn't know. He was so left brain. Is that the logic one? He was just so, you know, to him, he was solving a problem. He didn't think about it as really impacting the rest of us. And in that moment, I completely forgave him. And then I had to begin the journey of forgiving myself for my own judgment. and. Uh, I have done that and recognize that, you know, we're all doing the best we can. And I, you know, I do believe that when we show up with courage and authenticity and our truth, even if our truth is scary to us or to other people, uh, that that that's the path. That is the way to get to ultimate happiness. That's really beautiful. Like, you know, how do you forgive yourself when you see your now Rose, dad, sitting across from you at a diner, burst into tears, realizing his the wake of his destruction. 
that he never realized until it was pointed out by his middle daughter. And how do you then realize, oh my gosh, all of these things that I've held inside, that I've blamed him for, that I've judged him about, weren't really there. He didn't really do this knowing what I know and I feel. How, I mean, how long did it take you to forgive yourself? And please tell us how you did it, because I think that's the key to happiness is when you can truly forgive yourself for the little shortcomings that we all have. Yeah, you know, I, I would say that's one of those things that you keep doing on a on an ongoing basis when you find yourself in that place of self-condemnation might have nothing to do with whatever the, the story was decades ago. But when I find myself in that place of really kind of beating myself up or even sitting on the pity pot, I really have to back up, smile, love myself, say, you know, you're really doing okay. And, you know, these are just feelings. These are, this is just a part of what I'm experiencing. And um, I know both of you are aware that I've been taking some coursework in internal family systems therapy. And I'm fascinated with it. I wish I had known it all these years ago, because it really identifies that we all have within us a self that, and that self is 100% whole. It is not broken. It is not hurt. It's not angry. It is a pure and whole state of being that exists in each and every one of us. And our experiences in life can create these parts of us that show up and sometimes shadow that beautiful self that is full love and wisdom. And when we understand that, we can begin to sort of separate and say, you know, that part of me is maybe an angry part or a jealous part or a shamed part or a hurt part. And you can go back to loving that part instead of having that part drive the bus and drive you into places that you don't want to be. I continue to be fascinated with how we, what our makeup is. I have a strong faith and a strong belief that we, there is a higher power, that we are connected to a source that is good and loving and kind, and that we are a reflection of that. And when we can go back to that truth, that reality, that's where I find my grounding point. And, uh, and, and it's, it's at those times that I can look at some of these feelings or these other parts of me and just sort of be a bit humored by them or just say, okay, all right, I see where that's coming from, but I'm okay. I love that. You know, every time I speak with Trish, if they're, you know, if I call her because there's something, some issue that I'm having or some situation that I need to talk about, you, Trish, always can really frame things so well. And it makes what I thought was a big issue seem a lot more manageable, probably, probably smaller and just a little bit more matter of fact because of the way you look at the world. And you say, you know, you talk about being a whole being. We're all just, tr we're all just trying to do the best we can, first of all. And in getting back to your father and your conversation with Rose about, I struggle with the him and the her too. And I want to honor, I want to honor your dad by calling her Rose because that's who she really wanted to be. But in your, you saying, did you realize what you did 
to the people around you. Meanwhile, she was trying to be her most authentic self and struggling with that. So she was feeling her struggle. And of course, blind to everybody else's struggle because she was feeling so uncomfortable, literally in her own skin. Yep, that's exactly right, Kara. And it, you know, it, it reminds me, I mean, my son, I have one son, he's now in his late thirties and he's produced an amazing granddaughter whom I adore, but Michael travels to the beat of a different drummer. And, you know, he works for PricewaterhouseCoopers. He's got a great, great job, but he has a long sort of like a ZZ top beard and he likes to wear do rags over his head. And, you know, he's not the preppy kid that I raised. And it reminds me that when we judge people based on what they look like or what they do or even what they think or what their politics are. We're missing something. We're missing something really, really important. And so, you know, I've learned that over the years and really to look into the heart of the people around me and even into my own heart. Trish, what is one piece of advice that you would give to your 18-year-old self? Ah, ah, don't lose your sense of humor. (laughs) (laughs) Amen, girl. (laughs) Don't lose your sense of humor. I think it's really about, uh, it's really about love and looking at every situation as best we can through a lens of compassion and curiosity rather than judgment and feeling as if we've, you know, we've got the answers, whether they're right or wrong. And, uh, and I have to say that you know, even as I look back at my 18-year-old self, uh, she was full of compassion and curiosity and sometimes judgment. <laughs> um, letting go of the judgment, I think, you know, would be would be good advice for my 18-year-old self. That's great advice. I wish you'd given that to me when I was 18. <laughs> <laughs> I have two questions. One of them is going back to your story, Trish. I just have to know this. It's it's like one of my weird things about having to know. I think it's because I'm a detective's daughter. Did your mom take the cushion that was on fire that your dad set on fire with the cigarette and throw it in the garage and not put it out? And that's why your house caught on fire? Yes, actually, she uh, put it under the kitchen sink and saturated it with, you know, with water. I mean, she left it in the kitchen sink, water pouring on it and then set it out up against the house. And as you know, in an upholstered cushion, the embers were deep within and the water didn't get to every bit of what was burning. And it was probably, you know, very deep in the inner part of the cushion. She saturated the outside of it and it just continued to, uh, you know, to, to smolder until it burst into flames. And then it's like a tinderbox. Wow, that must that have is, just been horrifying yeah. for all of us. That's you. scary. Yeah. 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 It is. And if you girls didn't run and tell them, they they might not have made it. Might not have. Yeah. Yeah. We were on the second floor and you know, our our room would have gone first and they would have tried to come in and save us. And I don't know. You know, I've I've always felt that my guardian angel <laughs> had more than her share of assignments over the years. <laughs> oh, maybe you had a team. Maybe you had a village. I think, a team, I think we did have a team. <laughs> no doubt. It, I, my other question for you, Trish, is like, what do you, and I, and 
Karen and I have the good fortune of knowing you well and knowing how awesome of a human being you are. But what do you want to be remembered for after you die? I looked up your dad's support group that he put together, and I'm sure that's one of his legacies. What do you want yours to be? Wow. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm still working on it. I would like to write a book. And this conversation tonight has been so helpful to me because I haven't known where to begin to tell my story. And uh, so it, it could wind up being a book. I absolutely know for sure that in the work that I've done with seniors and the work that I've done uh, you know, with my teams in Connecticut, I know that together we made a tremendous difference in the lives of the people that we were serving. And that gives me a tremendous amount of peace and sense of satisfaction. But I think I'm still working on the rest of my legacy. And I love working with women. I love working with women who have had challenging histories and past because I do know that there is a path through and it's not just for survival it's it's for for reaching those highest and best possibilities and your dreams and your hopes it is entirely possible and so you know i'm still looking forward to working with people using some of these principles and some of these uh experiences that i've had because i know that it works that's awesome that is awesome i love it And thank you so much again for being with us, Trish. My pleasure. And uh, I love the work that you guys are doing. I love the concept of being brave. I never really thought of myself as being brave, but um, I'm beginning to think that maybe I am pretty brave. (laughs) I think, and then you know what? That's that's the point, right, Patty? A hundred percent. I mean, we hear that from everyone we reach out to and we're like, no. You're you're exactly who we want to talk to. Ordinary people go through extraordinary things and hardly ever get to tell their story and persevere and push through their life like they just, you know, kind of up scrape their arm. Okay, that'll that'll heal. Let me go on. Let me just, you know, push through it. And I don't think we spend enough time validating our own stories. We validate everyone else. But we don't validate our own stories. And like Kara said in the very beginning of this podcast, you sharing your story is now going to be a survival guide for someone else who might have gone through some similar things as you. And to know you, Trish, is to know somebody who's full of love and full of genuine, authentic, you know, positive person who will, will would help anybody try to do the same. So. I know that you have a positive, you know, well, Kara's going to share your how to get in touch with you. So I won't spoil it. (laughs) (laughs) If anybody would like to get in touch with Trish Walden, um, you could reach her on our Facebook page, which is A Positive Life LLC. She also can be reached by email at Trish Walden 9, the number 9, at gmail.com. That's T R I S H. W-A-L-D-E-N, the number nine at gmail.com. And Trish, if you do know when you write your book, I am going to be the first in line to buy it. And I'd like it to be signed by the author, please. Absolutely. (laughs) That'll be number two. I look forward to reading it. You got my promise. I'll do it at the same time. (laughs) 
That would be awesome. I really do hope you you write this book because I'm I'm sure there is a market for this. I mean, it's a great it's a great story, and and I know it's only one hour of your story. Um, there's probably a lot more to it, but this was great information, and we appreciate you being with us. Thank you, Trish. Thank you so much. You know, I knew this story in general. I didn't know some of the specifics. I certainly didn't know that he started that support group. I think that's so awesome. It's so cool that it's still in existence, Trish. It meets at, I love, I totally love, love, love this. So it's information is provided by United Way of Connecticut. Oh, wow. wow. Educational, social, and peer support group for transgender individuals meets on the second Saturday of the month at 2 p.m. at the Hartford Gay and Lesbian Health Collective. Friends and relatives are encouraged to come. Oh, wow. And there's an email here, 20club at gmail.com. Wow. Yep. That is so cool. Yeah, I remember that the 20 was XX, which stands for trans. That's the symbol. Oh, now I get it. It's not T-W-E-N-T-Y, it's XX. Right. Okay. The 20 Club, yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so cool. Thank you for pointing that out. That's so cool. Thank you guys so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed meeting Trish and listening to her awesome story about her childhood and growing up in a non-traditional family. How's that sound? (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) It was non-traditional. Awesome. Thank you. That was great, Trish. Thank you so much. You're so good at, at speaking. Thank you. You're good. You're welcome. We hope this podcast has inspired and empowered you to overcome what might be holding you back from living your best life. If you love this podcast, please share it with a woman you know who needs a little empowerment. Now go out in the world and be bold, be brave, be you. Perfectly imperfect you. With love, Kara and Patty. But I wonder what would happen if you say what you want to say. So maybe Desmond will put some of this in the outtakes or something. Mixed and edited by Desmond McNeese.